0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Everyone emphasizes Jerusalem. It's the big city, the important city, and the object of David's kingly ambitions. But it's not the city from which or to which David was called. On the contrary, it is Jerusalem's little sister, the city of Bethlehem that is set apart as the fruit-bearing house of the bread of God's instruction. It is this little town, a place of pasture for shepherds, that is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 4 to 6.
1: You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos and this is Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 231 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We continue our discussion of the Gospel of Matthew and King Herod is the gift that keeps giving. There's so much biblical context wrapped around this idea of the king as the antichrist not just in the meaning of Herod's name, but in the function of the earthly king as the Antichrist. And now we're going to see Herod continue to play this role, the role of Pharaoh, the role of Alexander the Great, the role of Caesar. But we're also going to begin to catch a glimpse because of the context, especially around the name Bethlehem, of how scripture brings peace in the midst of war, how scripture conquers the occupier without violence. We're going to see the shepherd, who's mentioned in Micah, confront the king
1: with a non-confrontation. The way that Matthew incorporates this text from Micah, Micah is talking about a specific context. There's something very specific about these places that's important and what the Old Testament set up in order to allow Matthew to write as he wrote.
0: Scripture dismantles your metaphors as an addressee of the text. Every one of you listening to the podcast, whether you are liberal or conservative, it doesn't matter, you're wrong scripturally, but whether you're liberal or conservative, you have your Herod, you have your candidate, and you cheer for that candidate, and you root for that candidate, and even if you consider yourself apolitical, you have some other hero that you root for who's a cynic. You can't escape your own humanity. You want to worship a God. That's how you function. And if you look around and can't find a God to worship, you make yourself a God. That's what your atheism is. You make yourself a God. Scripture is presenting you with the scriptural God who once again takes on and then emasculates the symbols that you ascribe to your deities. And that's certainly true of kingship and violence and politics. People sometimes ask why we talk so much about what they hear as the political intrigue of the Bible. But that tells me they're still not hearing what the Bible is saying. Because Matthew is setting us up, Richard, for what we would expect to be a violent confrontation. You have an imposter, with a Greek name, sitting on David's throne, a puppet of the Romans, with a very bad case of Stockholm Syndrome. He could probably articulate all the benefits of being under Roman occupation. One would expect then Jesus to come in and confront Herod or for us to speed forward in the story till he's an adult the way that movies do it today. And we see now that he's a young man like Mel Gibson in Braveheart come back to his hometown to confront Herod, no. That's what you would expect from this story, the way that Matthew has laid it out. But it's a hoax because chapter 5 of Micah is already fulfilled now with the birth of Jesus, with his presence as a little child in the metaphor of the story, because we're going to hear not about how peace is won through strength, which is the way the fleshly people talk. This is cheap, vain human talk. We're going to hear about the peace of the father of Jesus under occupation that liberates you from the occupation, which has nothing to do with
1: might. The Bible is always confronting power, and it's always undermining what we believe power to be. And it's constant. It's not something that just started with the New Testament. We have it in Micah. In Micah chapter 5, it says that he's going to bring peace when the Assyrians invade us. So my first question is, how do you do that? If you're being invaded, how do you bring peace? Well, the way the fleshly would say, as you said, Father, you fight them until you kill them, and then there's peace. That's not peace. That's war. That's the opposite of peace. That's doublespeak, as 1984 would call it. Actual peace is saying, no, we're not going to fight. Well, then you just undermined your whole position because how are you going to get rid of the Assyrians if you're not going to fight? So where's the peace? The fleshly would say, how can there be peace when the Assyrians are invading us? It's impossible to have peace. The Assyrians decided it. Wait a second, since when did the Assyrians get to decide what's going to happen? The Lord alone gets to decide. And then you can choose to follow the Lord's will or not. Recently, this public official quoted Paul and said that all authority comes from God. But then he went on to say that what the human authorities say is by nature good. I beg to differ with you. If you're going to go with the Bible, eh, there's not a lot of human rulers who can be assumed to be good. As a matter of fact, there's not a single one. Every single human being establishes a law that goes against God. According to Hosea 4.1, the only law that you're allowed to perform as a king in the Bible is trust, loving kindness, and knowledge of God. That's all that God's looking for. These are the only weapons that the governor mentioned in Micah is allowed to use. He has to bring about peace using only these instruments, which counter any instrument that a human ruler would use. This is the confrontation, which is the non-confrontation. This is the peace that comes in the midst of invasion. This is the capitulation that is not capitulation. But I
0: hasten to add, Richard, and it's important because I know now that there are some listeners who consider themselves pacifists, who are saying, ah... So what you're saying, Dr. Benton, is that the Bible advocates pacifism. No, it doesn't advocate pacifism. It doesn't advocate anything you care about. It advocates your disempowerment. Because when Herod himself attacks you, it's the will of God. And this is what our politicians are getting wrong today at the border. You cannot say that because God is sending the government against you, as government, that this justifies what you do. They're misreading Romans. It just has to be said. It doesn't matter what your politics are. Just leave the Bible out of it because you don't know what you're talking about. Yes, it's true. Scripture is not advocating pacifism. Only because if it were to advocate pacifism, you would become self-righteous and complain when Herod persecutes you. Listen carefully to what we're saying you may not commit violence you should you have authority may not exercise it against the poor if someone else does so to you you may not fight back passivism in this sense is not good enough because it allows for self-righteousness it allows for you to judge the other scripture doesn't so please be careful this is about, exactly as you say, Richard, disempowerment. But the way that scripture disempowers is completely irrational. I was asked to give a talk to children a couple weeks ago about the Bible. And I explained to them there are just a couple basic facts that you need to remember about the Bible. And if you remember these facts, the Bible will do what it needs to do in your life. The first fact is that when the Bible is read. It is always read against you. It is always critical of you. You are always wrong. If you hear Scripture and somehow hear that you're right, you're not hearing Scripture. You're always wrong. The second principle I shared with the kids is that the Bible is only the actual Bible when you apply it to yourself. If you apply it to someone else, it ceases to work. It's no longer the Bible it's like the battery dies and the screen goes blank because you're not using it the way it was intended to be used. And then, of course, the third point was that it's written down, meaning you have no control over it. But listen to those three principles I shared. Number one, it's always against you. It's always proving that you're wrong. It's always showing you that you're wrong. It's going against the way you live, the way you act, the way you think. You can only apply it to yourself. You can't apply it to your neighbor and it was written down before you. It will be written down after you're gone. You can't control it. You don't need to defend it. It is what it is. If all of us would follow these basic principles, there's no way that you could use the Bible to justify war. There's no way that you could use the Bible to justify slavery. There's no way that you could use the Bible to justify stripping children away from their parents. This is not political. If you're conservative, I have no problem with conservative ideology. I'm not a liberal or a conservative. But if you ask me if it's okay to use the Bible to justify separating children from their parents, I'm sorry. I don't know what book you're reading or how you're reading it, but you're off the mark, way off the mark. And you should go back and read Matthew chapter 18 before you start quoting Romans against little children, especially when the passage in Romans that you're co-opting is the commandment to love. The whole section is about love. It's not about glorifying the state. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So Herod is insecure. We know from verse three from last week that he was troubled and now he's trying to get the gossip. He's doing what kings do. What are people saying? Where is this guy? I need to get a handle on the situation. Does the press know
1: yet? And the way that he does it is he brings in the chief priests and scribes. This is the first time we have them mentioned in the Bible. So as we move along in Matthew and we start to understand more about these characters, although they don't have individual names, they're kind of named as a group, the scribes and the chief priests, we understand that first and foremost, they're functionaries of the king. They're there to help inform the king. Now, this can be good. I mean, Deuteronomy says that the king must be under Torah. So, this is correct. And so far, the chief priests and scribes aren't doing anything wrong. They're simply saying he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Like, we can tell you what it says in the Bible about the Messiah. But it's interesting because he's saying this out of insecurity, like you said, Father. He's troubled. He's troubled when he asks them. He's worried about what? There's only one thing for the king to be worried about his own power. And so while he brings in the chief priests and the scribes to inform him about scripture, the way he uses it and manipulates it, eh, it's not what scripture intended, I can't imagine. So he co-opts scripture in order to just do what he wants to do, which is a very common tool of any government of any time.
0: You have classically in the ancient Near East, the king and the religious establishment. And let me make it clear because it's always important to remember the fundamentals of the historical context. There was no concept of the separation of church and state. They weren't even understood as two separate things because the king was the son of the deity. That's why the king is the antichrist in scripture, because Herod, insofar as he is sitting on a throne asserting power, is taking the place of God. And the final analysis, that's what's so beautiful about the kingship of Jesus Christ, He's the only one who doesn't function as a king in opposition to his father. Jesus is not a king the way that Herod is a king. He's a shepherd who ascends to the throne of the king. He's the shepherd of Micah who is going to push Herod off the throne just not in the way that you imagine.
1: And not like King David, because when King David moved from being a shepherd to sitting on the throne, he became corrupt. With Jesus, it is different because he never fully leaves being a shepherd. He is always a shepherd. Even after death, he is still shepherding. He's
0: not the shepherd who became king. This is an important distinction that you highlight, Richard. He's not the shepherd who became king. He is the shepherd who ascended the throne in Israel as a shepherd. It's beautiful.
1: Scripture holds authority, and the king is then a functionary of scripture. So the king, his job is simply to judge to make sure everyone's following scripture. That's the only job he has. But what happens here is that the king subsumes the chief priests and scribes as his functionaries, where he holds the authority. And this is the very subtle difference. You know, when you see in the history of the Eastern Church and you had the so-called symphonia of the emperor who held in his hand civil authority and the patriarch who held in his hand the religious authority, both were easily corrupted because both wanted to establish and maintain earthly rule. This is the problem. They were not here to undermine earthly rule.
0: A great way to understand this idea, which is obviously an important idea from Father Paul's work, The Rise of Scripture, of the shepherd ascending the throne as a shepherd. For those of you who are a Roman Catholic, you'll appreciate this example. Whoever would have imagined that you would have a Jesuit ascend the cathedra in the Vatican? Who would have imagined that and function as a Jesuit, as pope? It's almost strange saying that he's the Pope because he still speaks like a Jesuit pastor. That's the idea. So that someone who would view Herod as their hero upon seeing Jesus ascending the throne would see an imposter and Jesus's behavior on the throne would be disruptive because he is not a king in that sense. He is a shepherd who took the throne a shepherd who ascended the throne of Israel as a shepherd. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Now, Bethlehem is an important metaphor also. It means in Hebrew, the house of bread. It was originally a Canaanitic city. There's some speculation that the etymology of the name may pertain to a Canaanitic deity. But in Hebrew, in the play on language, it means the house of bread. And bread is a metaphor for the teaching, the bread of life. Bethlehem is secondary to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is where Rachel was buried in Genesis. Bethlehem somehow is the little sister of the major city. And this, again, is played on in Micah, that out of the least would come the shepherd of Israel. You have to hear it this way. That Bethlehem is the city of David, it's not because Bethlehem is a great city because in the imagination of the scriptural writer, it's the city of David because David was called to be something other than a king. David was called to be a shepherd in Samuel, but instead abandoned his role as shepherd and ascended as the king of Israel. But the beauty of Bethlehem as a metaphor is that it is the little sister of Jerusalem that David began as a shepherd and lost his way. And so we're starting over. Jesus is beginning as a shepherd and is going to end as a shepherd. And Bethlehem, in its smallness, is going to become fruitful, which is the meaning of the word Ephrathah in Hebrew. So it's the house of bread, the bread of the teaching, and it's going to bear fruit in Judah. This is what the eschatological David was called to do. And now Jesus is going to make it happen. And Herod can continue to be an imposter. The Romans can continue to choke the land and abuse the people. But there will be peace because the bread of life will be served in Bethlehem.
1: Yes. And as we were talking about David's ascension, but his moral descent, he is of Bethlehem because, according to the story, this was where his father was from. Jesse was a Bethlehemite. But it wasn't enough for David to be of Bethlehem. He had to conquer Jerusalem, which was not Jerusalem when he conquered it. It was a Jebusite city, which he took over. This is him taking over the Benjaminite land to claim as his own. And this is the beginning of the end for David. When David was still of Bethlehem, there was hope. As soon as David was of Jerusalem, there was danger. This is the point that Matthew wants to make from the very beginning because Herod is sitting in Jerusalem with his staff plotting and twisting scripture Following in the line of David, and we have a new line here that was established in chapter one of the un the non-David, the next David, which is Jesus who is going to do things in a completely different way that undermines the way that was done before. I have to
0: confess my sin at this juncture, Richard, before we continue, that I am a little biased when it comes to Bethlehem. So full disclosure, my mother is from Bethlehem. I'm very happy that Matthew is happy with Bethlehem and you Bethlehem land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again we are not reading shepherdism into the text. It's right there in Micah. Matthew is choosing Micah as the context for this passage and we see here a stark contrast between the behavior of David the old David, the fleshly David, and now the behavior of the scriptural Jesus, the eschatological scriptural son
1: of David and the way that he's confronting the abuse of the king. It's very clear in Greek, it's not as clear in Hebrew in the Micah text, but it's unmistakable that he will shepherd my people Israel. And it's significant that in the translations, for some reason, the translators don't wanna have shepherd. They want to say rule. Is it too small a thing that Jesus would be a shepherd and not a ruler? I don't know, but this already shows how easy it is for this bias to creep in that we want Jesus to be a ruler the way we want him to be a ruler. We want him to kick Herod out of office. We want him to make a change we can all believe in, but that's not how Jesus functions. He makes a change that none of us can believe in because he undermines the very power that energizes the change that we want to see. Matthew, in a chapter and a half, has already chipped away at how human beings understand what power is and how power is going to function throughout not only Matthew, but the entire New Testament. And
0: the question you're left with is, which king... Will you serve which king will you follow that's the question you have to start asking now and it's easy now at this juncture in matthew to be excited about the prospect of following jesus in a very worldly sense you can have worldly hope because he's just a child everybody has worldly hope when they look at children because they foolishly think that today's children will be different than we are when they grow up this is foolish but the fact is Jesus is different. He's going to do something different. And that difference, the way he carries out the instruction, the bread that is preached in Bethlehem, is our hope for genuine peace, for genuine life. And it's the only hope for those children at the border who are separated from their parents. So please preach the gospel. Don't just listen to the podcast Study the Bible on your own, teach it, preach it, and live it for the sake of those children and the many others who are under the boot of Herod. Christ is in our midst.
1: He is never shall be. You've just heard the Bible as Literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production
0: of the Ephesus School Network.